I have the opportunity to introduce Rick Langer, who's going to be sharing with us this morning. And he is a longtime friend of the Grace community. He's taught several times. He's done the men's retreat, not the women's retreat. Sorry, Rick. Um, But he's a professor of biblical and theological studies at Biola. He is also the director of their integration of faith and learning. And he recently wrote a book called Winsome Persuasion, which is about the Christian influence in this cultural climate. Um, And we've been talking about what it means to engage the world around us. And so Rick is going to be coming and sharing with us um, what what could be called conversational hospitality, how we host through our words. And so let's welcome Rick Langer. Thank you very much. It's always fun to be here. Uh, This is a bit of a home away from home for Sherry and I. Uh, This is an interesting introduction to a talk, right? To have baby dedication and praying for Las Vegas. Um, I have to admit, it goes together better than I wish. Um, Isn't that kind of life? You know, these sort of weird swings. This past year for me, I have buried both of my parents, and I've had two grandsons born. And they rotated. (laughs) Grandson born, father died. Grandson born, mother died. I'm like, good grief. Uh, You know, when when does this stop? And and of course, that's just life. It's a crazy sort of world that we live in. Um, Yeah, I just think about that as I was watching it. The other thing I thought about, if if I was a video game maker, I would make Mortal Kombat 2 the baby dedication. (laughs) Um, I remember doing baby, I was a pastor for 20 years, did my share of baby dedications. The things that go on while you close your eyes to pray would take your breath away. <laughs> Anyhow, that's not what I'm here to talk about today. Um, I, I've been, so I wrote this book as, as it was mentioned on, on Winsome Persuasion with a friend of mine, Tim Yulhoff, and I've spent a lot of time thinking recently about these sorts of topics, and it's kind of dawned on me that um, one of the biggest challenges that we face is speaking Christianly. And let me just explain what I mean by that. Uh, when you're speaking Christianly, what you're doing is you're sharing a perspective on some particular issue that is distinctly Christian. And now that might be some tenet of the Christian faith, but it could also just be a social issue or something like that where your viewpoint is significantly and meaningfully determined by your Christian faith. So that's the first part of speaking Christianly. And the second part is that you're doing that to a person who disagrees with you on that issue and doesn't share your faith. They deny the faith that you affirm. And you guys, if you stop and think about it, probably have those moments where it's, oh, here's an opportunity, or you find yourself actually speaking something that is distinctively reflective of your Christian faith, but you're talking about it to a person who doesn't share that faith and doesn't agree with your viewpoint. Um, and, and that's hard. We don't like that. I was thinking about this, and I think part of why is that we just don't like disagreeing in general. People like to like each other. People like to get along. And, of course, when you begin to disagree, you realize, ooh, that may not, may not happen here. And so that gets a little unnerving. But the other thing is we don't want to represent Christ badly. We don't want to reflect badly on Jesus. And so if we're going to present a viewpoint that is somehow reflective of Christ, we want to do it right. Um, I was speaking at a, at a marriage conference yesterday. I just, you know, a friend of mine was doing the hosting and everything, but I just came to give one talk in the afternoon. And 
So I walked in, we were chatting, I was setting things up before the talk, and I asked, so how's everything going? He said, hey, it's been going great, don't screw it up. <laughs> okay, fair enough. He was joking, but it is funny how I think we have that feeling sometimes, is that I don't want to screw it up. I don't, I don't want to screw up Jesus for this person by the way I talk or convey my Christian convictions. Um, so that makes all this problematic. And then what we seem to do just as a kicker on top of all this is we have certain models in our head about what does it mean to, to speak Christianly. You know, oh yeah, that's being like Billy Graham. Okay, if that's not intimidating, I don't know what is. You know, whoever pops in Billy Graham, Robbie Zacharias, you have all these images of these people and you're like, oh, can I do that? You know, you open the, the New Testament, you read Peter giving the, the, the sermon on Pentecost or, or Paul the, the Mars Hill uh, sermon or, or Elijah on Mount Carmel. <laughs> it's like, whoa, these guys are doing these incredible things as they speak on behalf of God. What do I do? It's like you're, you're, you're lined up in the bottom of the ninth. You step to the plate, the pitcher's there. It's the World Series and you're supposed to make the hit. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of modest Dodgers fan. It's been sort of depressing for the last 29 years. So I always think of great moments like when Kirk Gibson hit that wonderful home run. Um, and those are the kinds of things that we tend to get coming to our mind when we think about doing this. And that just gets really intimidating. You think about this and go, Kirk Gibson hit the home run. That's great. I strike out in slow pitch softball. This is going to end badly. Uh, And the interesting thing to remember, perhaps using Kirk Gibson as an example, that the most interesting thing about Kirk Gibson is not actually, the most important thing is not actually that he hit that home run. And, And by the way, I'd like you to stop and think for a minute about how many times Kirk Gibson struck out before he hit that home run. In T-ball when he was four to begin with, right? And then in coach pitch when he was five. And on through how many times had he swung and missed? And by the way, how many major league baseball players will go through their entire career and never come up to the plate in the ninth inning of a World Series game where the game is on the line and they can affect the outcome. With a busted up knee, having been pulled out, and coming in as a pitch hitter just for a kicker. I mean, I can think of one, Kurt Gibson, nobody else. And the bottom line is most of the time we aren't going to be living in those kinds of moments and are constantly thinking about this task in those kinds of terms just intimidates us and make us withdraw from a task I would love to see us engage in. We begin to retreat when we should be leaning in. And my hope today is to just sort of kind of demystify some of the process of talking about God and kind of extending invitations to people to talk with you and have meaningful conversations about spiritual things, about, well, about God. It's hard to speak Christianly, but in other ways, it's remarkably easy. And part of why, what I'm going to do here is instead of taking a look at Paul giving his Mars Hill sermon, what I want to do is look at the passage of Scripture right before and ask, what happened before Mars Hill? How did he get that invitation? What was going on that enabled him to give that kind of a message? And I think what we'll find is it's a lot of the ordinary stuff. A lot of the things like Kirk Gibson 
practicing his swing or striking out when he was in high school. Uh, There's a lot of things that happen here that you'll find to be hopefully both ordinary and also a little bit inviting in the sense that you might look at it and say, oh, wait, I could do that too. So let me just read this passage from Acts chapter 17. It's uh, Acts 17 beginning in verse 16. The, uh, the Mars Hills sermon that we are more familiar with begins in verse 22. But here's what went on before. And just for a little backstory, um, Paul has just begun his second or third missionary journey. He's uh, just crossed uh, what we call the Hellespont, that little strait, the Straits of Bosphorus in, in Istanbul. Um, and the interesting thing there is when he did that, he moved from Asia to Europe. And that may sound like it's a short trip there, right? It's, I don't know, it's two miles wide or something like that. But the interesting thing was for the spread of the gospel, probably the single most important thing that ever happened was the gospel moving and spreading from Asia to Europe. Because if we think of the worldwide spread of historic Christianity, the birthplace of that spread was actually from Europe, not from Asia. An incredibly significant move that Paul had no idea he was making when he made it. So he he lands in what is modern-day Greece, he has a series of, of terrible adventures. <laughs> it's this great moment in Christian history, right? It stunk. Uh, first thing that happens, he gets thrown in prison in Philippi. Then he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they're listening to him a while and think, hey, this guy sounds like a heretic. They got some Jews there who didn't like him. And so they tried to kill him. Uh, they bail him out through the city wall. He shows up in Berea. Things are looking better, except... Then the people from Thessalonica come down and they try and kick him out of of Berea. And so Paul ends up fleeing from Berea and uh, he has to leave Silas and Timothy behind and say, you know, Paul, just head down to Athens, lay low. We'll finish things up here in Berea. We'll come down and find you and we'll get on with it. So Paul has been ditched, dumped, left, fled to Athens. This was not on his plan. This was not his itinerary, so to speak. And As we meet him here, we discover that he was simply there waiting. I love this line, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, Silas and Timothy were out doing the stuff. Paul was just waiting. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and with devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? (laughs) Gotta love that line. Um, Others said, he seems to be a preacher of a foreign divinity because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and their foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing except telling and hearing something new. This is Luke's little sarcastic editorial comment about the clientele that Paul was speaking to. Now, interesting backstory to the Mars Hill sermon. And I just want to take a few minutes to think about it just a little bit more deeply. That's what was going on there and what might we be able to learn from Paul's example. So first, let me talk about a few things that Paul did, what I call opening doors through openness. Uh, He was open to a series of sort of prompts that came up to him in a way that I think is a really good example for us. So first of all, he was open to difference. In other words, he looked around and he realized, oh, wow, 
there's some things that are really different here. Um, and the thing that he saw was their worship practices. He looked around and saw a city that was full of idols. And he found that personally repellent. He didn't like the idols. And, you know, this will obviously come up later. I mean, you see that in, in the story. But the first thing I'd like to point out, the interesting thing to me was, he was simply open to observing that difference. And then when he observed it, he didn't think about himself and how little he liked those idols, but rather he thought about the people who were worshiping those idols. And he asked himself, what's going on in their mind when they turn and worship this idol? What's it like to have a whole pile of gods to worship? What's it like to feel like with all of those gods that you have out there, you somehow still haven't answered the question, so you actually throw in one to the unknown God? And he's realizing, wow, this is a pile of really religious people who are not finding their religion to work for them. What's it like to be in that situation? It's really interesting. And the thing that, that I find so intriguing about this, um, you know, you see what Paul does and what I just read. He goes out and talks to people and engages them. A, a distasteful idea didn't stop a discussion for Paul. It started one. Someone held a belief that he found repugnant or bizarre or strange, and that didn't lead him to think that that person was repugnant, bizarre, or strange. It led him rather to talk to that person. To go, huh, I wonder what's going on in their mind. It's a wonderful model for us. A distasteful idea doesn't make a person distasteful. And sometimes when I, if I think if I said that 10 years ago, I would be thinking I was just saying something that everyone nod their head and agree with. After the last three or four years of the Twitter sphere, um, I wonder if we aren't living in a world where we assume if anyone has a distasteful idea, they must be a distasteful person. And we treat and act towards one another as if the fact that I disagree with your ideas somehow makes you a fundamentally disagreeable human being. And Paul doesn't do that. He's open to the difference. He's like, okay, okay, they're different. Let's find out. Second thing he does, you know, upon this realization of openness, as he saw the city full of idols, um, it's interesting that the passage notes his spirit was provoked, but his response to being provoked was not to be provocative, but rather to reason with them. So it says he was provoked in spirit, so he reasoned with them in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he was provoked and he reasoned. Instead of them being problematic, so he shuts them out, he sought them out. And the interesting thing here is he went to them on their terms. He went to the Jews in their synagogue. He went to the Greeks in their marketplace. He found these devout people who were probably kind of outliers. Uh, these are usually a term that's used for Greek people who are around the Jewish synagogue. They're, they're God-fearers in the sense they aren't Jews, but they're attracted to the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so to speak. Um, and he went and talked to them on their own turf. It's really interesting. He didn't invite them to come to church. He went to their church instead. 
He went to where they hung out. He was okay with being there. And then he had all kinds of really interesting conversations with those people who he met on their terms. It's a terrific model. And the other thing that he was, he was open to failing. Uh, That's what we read, right? The first comment after Paul is gone, he's reasoning, he's talking with all these people. Hey, how did they like it? They said, well, what is this babbler trying to say? Babbling is a great word here. It's it's uh, in, in the Greek language. It's a word that you call onomana po. The, the the word sounds like the thing you're describing. So, like the word crack has that sort of hard sound to it. Well, babbler is intended to be a word that captures, roughly speaking, the sound of a bird picking up trash in the gutter. And it's and it's like what's what's he talking about? Oh, he's just he's just a bird chattering in the gutter picking up garbage. You know, as a big booming, you know, imagine that written on your uh, comment card, teacher evaluation time, Langer talks like a bird picking up garbage in a gutter. Um, that's pretty much what Paul got. And the funny thing is, this is the apostle Paul, for heaven's sakes. Uh, and, and it's an interesting thing. Uh, sometimes we just need to take a deep breath and realize people's response sometimes tell you more about them than it did about you. Right, 2,000 years later, people are still reading what the Apostle Paul wrote. I'm guessing whoever it was who convicted him or accused him of being a babbler, we don't even know their name, right? And we're naming our kids after Paul. So the mere fact that someone calls you a babbler, by the way, this is not good grounds for, for, you know, calling it quits. It's all over. The world is now ready to end. Uh, Not at all. That person disagrees with you. They don't see it your way, and the way you communicate it doesn't work for them. They find you to be a babbler. The interesting thing was Paul was open in that sense to failing. He was also open to succeeding and everything in between because that's what you discover here. You have these other people who are saying, well, he isn't a babbler. He's talking about some foreign god, some foreign divinity, Jesus, resurrection. I don't know what it is, but they, and you can tell they're kind of getting it. They're, they're understanding what he's saying. They just don't know what to make of it. And then finally you have a batch of people saying, wow, what he's actually saying is kind of interesting. I don't know exactly what he means, but let's get him to come and talk more about it. And so the interesting byproduct, end product, of all of this openness that he had and openness to being different and openness to reason and openness to fail and openness to succeed, the net effect is that it opened doors for him. And he ended up going and getting an invitation to speak at the Areopagus. If you've ever been to, uh, to Greece, to Athens, you'll see the Acropolis is the you know, famous kind of building up on top of the, the, the hill that's called the Acropolis. And right down below it is, uh, is Mars Hill and this place that's called the Areopagus, which is where uh, for a long time actually it kind of served like a supreme court for Athens. At the time when Paul is there, it no longer has that official judicial sort of function, but it was still one of those big-time places to gather. And suddenly he finds himself invited to speak there. Um, Interesting thing. How did that happen? Actually, because of a whole cascade of openness on his part. Just openness. Now, it is an interesting thing to think about that kind of a moment. (laughs) Hey, the door's open, and you're suddenly looking up, and you're going, what's on the other side of that door? I don't know if I want to enter. And I'd just like to give a few words of encouragement about going ahead and entering Um, And just 
well, plant a couple of seeds on that. Number one, I'd like to suggest that we probably have a lot more opportunities to enter into this kind of a conversation than we think. Back to Paul's example here. As I pointed out earlier, Paul's waiting. Um, In other words, he's sitting there kind of drumming his fingers going, I wonder where Silas and Timothy are. I told them to get back down here as soon as they are, but they aren't here yet. So he's killing time. And apparently for sort of a season, if he's going to the synagogue, they... You know, this may be just a weekly meeting, but apparently he's been there a few times. He's going out day by day into the market. He's, he's waiting. He's waiting. Um, are you short on opportunities? Here's a recommendation. Go to the DMV. <laughs> I mean, plenty of opportunities to wait, right? Um, now, that isn't exactly what's going on here, but it is one of those interesting moments where I was, wow, Paul is totally not doing his plan right now. And we have this way of thinking, oh, how can I strategically influence the culture shapers? Uh, You know, Paul might have had a few culture shaper plans, but these weren't them. He just got bounced out of all the teen towns he wanted to talk to, and he's waiting for the buddies to come down so he can get back on with life. But God opens the door while he's waiting. It's not the door he thought it was. But lo and behold, it's a door he's willing to walk through to make the most of. Um, so that is kind of an interesting thing that Paul just does. He's, he's not worried, apparently, about the fact that this wasn't his strategic plan. And he's quite happy to say, God, you know, whatever you have planned is my strategic plan, <laughs> right? Not what I will, but what you will. And hey, let's go for it. And that's what he did. Another thing I'd like to point out is that we have way more in common with people than we think. And again, Paul's a wonderful example of this here. Um, he, you know, he, he sees this uh, provocative phrase, you know, the, the idol to the unknown God. And Paul stops and thinks, huh. So here we've got a bunch of people who are seeking God, but the God they're seeking isn't quite the right God. <laughs> they're missing something and they have a sense of it. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of me when I was just a Jew and I was doing all these things and it wasn't working. And then one day on the road to Damascus, I met, met the part of God that I was missing namely Jesus. And Paul looks at a bunch of people who are trying to figure out God and saying there's something that is unknown and I don't get and says, hey, I've been there. I've been there. I've had those moments when I had God all wrong and I thought I had him all right. I'm, I'm just like you. Another interesting thing, the Epicureans, these philosophers he's talking to, were famously uh, down on... Um, superstition and kind of irrational belief in the gods. They were kind of the sophisticated intellectuals and they're looking at all this and saying, this is just crazy. You need substantive reasons for your belief. Well, interestingly enough, what does Paul think about having reasons to believe in God? Oh yeah, that's exactly what he did, right? He saw this whole God stuff going and he went and he reasoned with them. And Paul looks at the Epicurean and says, hey, I'm just like you. I, you you're great, I like this whole thing about having reasons and not just running off after superstitions. Let me give you some of my reasons. And, oh yeah, you're just like me. And the Stoics, these other batch of philosophers who were figuring in this story, these are people who kind of affirmed the grand unity of all mankind uh, in in our kinship, our derivation in some sense from from a single God. And Paul agrees. 
As you read on through the Marshall's sermon in, in the following verses, he talks about this God who gives life to all mankind, uh, the God in whom we live and move and have our being. So Paul's looking at the Stoic and saying, oh yeah, I think just like you on that issue. And the uncanny thing here is that Paul is looking around saying, oh, there's all these things we share in common. I had an interesting educational moment on this um, I did my dissertation on abortion. Um, I was a philosophy, I had my PhD in philosophy, and so I wrote my dissertation on abortion at UC Riverside. Just to clarify, UC Riverside is not the hotbed of the pro-life movement. So, you know, everything I said in that dissertation was going to be contrary to what everyone who was reading it believed. Um, So I ended up having kind of this sense of, antagonism or something um, between my thoughts and their thoughts. So I actually had a good experience. The people I worked with were actually great. It was, a, it was a fine time. But I was obviously assuming that we didn't share anything in common. Well, a few years later, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he had uh, kind of his own sort of strange experience. He was a doctor, medical doctor, but also he's just one of those guys who's a natural-born businessman. And so he ended up doing more of the business side of medical practice and ended up, you know, in a relationship where he's uh, building latex or manufacturing latex gloves and things like this. And then he met this guy who had a synthetic alternative to latex, and he took that, and they started making these synthetic alternatives. So he ended up involved in kind of all kinds of interesting places, ultimately sitting on boards at the FDA about how do we deal with, with, you know, latex regulation, latex allergies, things like this. And a lot of times it's associated on one hand medical things with gloves, on the other hand condoms and birth control sorts of issues. So he ended up having some incredible conversations with people in Washington, D.C. about these sorts of topics. And I was chatting with him about it one day and said, yeah, Rick, you know, the funny thing is, um, is how much everybody agrees about abortion. And I'm like, Really? He says, yeah. He said, I, you know, I, I'm in these meetings. I never meet anyone who's in favor of abortion. Nobody likes an abortion. Um, I mean, there might be somebody out there, but these are like the crazy people who pull, you know, limbs off insects when they're growing up too, right? Uh, everybody else looks at abortion as some sense of a tragedy. This is a thing that shouldn't have happened. This is a thing that's sad. And therefore, if you walk into a room like that and say, let's do whatever we can to minimize abortions, the fewer abortions, the better. Basically, everyone in the room will nod their head and say yes. Now, the other issue that people have there is that people think a woman should have the freedom to decide what happens when something is that intimately connected with her own body. Well, let me just suggest the idea that a woman has the right to do what she likes with her body on matters of intimate concern sounds reasonably plausible to me, right? And here's the funny thing. I'm suddenly agreeing with both statements. They're suddenly agreeing with both statements. What are we disagreeing about? Well, we're disagreeing how to reconcile two things we both hold to be true. We value them differently. We understand them differently. But the funny thing is how much we have in common. And the thing that we sometimes think is that somehow this non-Christian person and this person with this other view, be it on an issue like abortion or gay marriage or whatever it is, it's like, I know they look normal when they go to the mall, but when they get home, they pull back their hair and there's at least three different tentacles sticking out the back of their head because they must be an alien. You know, they, they, How could they think such a crazy thought? They must be from a different planet. Um, that isn't true. That isn't true. 
by and large, we share a whole pile of core understandings about what it means to be a rational, thoughtful human being, and believe it or not, a batch of core understandings about what we think to be good. The problem is we live in a complex world, so there's never just one issue that pertains to something you're looking at. You think, oh, let's talk about the abortion issue. Well, there's like 10 issues. And we may agree about each of the 10 things individually, and then we end up not agreeing about how it goes together. Is it that surprising that that happens? Are these people that crazy? So in light of that, let's build to the common ground. Let's talk about the things we share in common and then take a look at now that we have this base that's built up that we share. Can we sort out some of the things that we disagree on? Can we help us understand each other's differences from a basis that appeals to a lot of things we actually agree about? Paul's an incredible example of this here, where he goes out and he talks to these guys and says, oh yeah, been there too. Got it. That's a good thought. That makes sense. He's able to give them some wonderful affirmation as he does this. So those are some things that we see from the Apostle Paul. Uh, to, to, to wrap things up here, what I want to do is just give like some troubleshooting tips on this whole process. So you're supposed to go speak Christianly. How does this actually work in real life? It's sort of like you just bought the new dishwasher and then there's that little thing at the end that says troubleshooting. Oh yeah, what happens when you face some of these problems or what are tips for doing it so you don't have, have the problem? So my first tip is it's way better to be an interested person than an interesting person. Way better to be an interested person rather than an interesting person. I learned this lesson from a friend of mine. Um, he, he, I, we were friends in high school, and he went off to Stanford, actually, to go to college. Um, and he met a guy there who he really liked, had him for a class, and he became somewhat of a mentor. And he, I think he had been in either Nixon's cabinet or maybe it was Kennedy or something like that. But anyway, he had been very, very high-level professional. After he was done with a political life in that administration, he went and joined Stanford's faculty. So he was a pretty high-powered, very sharp guy, and my friend was really impressed by him. So he started to go in and he'd talk with him and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, he told me the story about this one time he'd gone into the, uh, to his office and was telling him something or another, and about halfway through the conversation, the guy just put up his, his, his finger like that, and, and Jim stopped. And, and he said, you know, Jim, you try really hard to be an interesting person. You should try that hard to be an interested person. Whoa. Um, and I swear we as Christians spend a huge amount of time trying to come up with the interesting right thing. Oh, if I could just come up with it the way C.S. Lewis would say that. And we, we really bust our tails to be interesting. If we only work that hard to be interested... Being interested in another person is one of the very, very, very best ways to say I love you without words. You are so significant to me that I will give you the gift I give least to anything or anybody, and that is the gift of my attention. I'm interested in you. And ask questions then rather than giving talks or presentations or, or memorized scripts and you guys, by the way, you all know this. People are really good at figuring out whether you're interested in them or not. 
the salesman who walks up to your door and says, hey, it looks like you really like flowers. And then they go on and the whole thing about why you should buy their Kirby vacuum cleaner or something. And, and you realize you start to ask him about the flower thing and you realize he couldn't care less about the flowers. He's there to sell you a vacuum cleaner. So do we ever start asking people about things because we want to sell them Jesus, the vacuum cleaner? And at some point, we need to say, no, let me be an interested person. One of the things that really hit me with this happened back when I was at UC Riverside. It was a great lesson. I, I was, you know, obviously wanting to share my faith and stuff down there. I was sitting out in kind of the quad, and one of the other grad students who was in a seminar class with me went walking by. And I knew his name. We, we knew each other, but never really talked much. And so he's walking by. I said, hi. I said, hi. And I kind of sat up, and I said, so, you know, What's going on? Something we, we began a little bit of a conversation. And then just this thought popped into my head. And I just asked him, so tell me, how did you ever fall in love with philosophy? We're both grad students in philosophy, right? And he laughs. And he says, you know, it's a really funny story. And he starts telling me about what happened when he had to take this, you know, couldn't get in the class he wanted, had to take a, a, a philosophy class when he was a sophomore, and they had to read Plato. And it's like he started reading Plato, and, you know, the angelic choirs began to sing, and all the world was a different place because he was reading Plato. He talked about this for 45 minutes. Unbelievable. And then he, he gets to the end of the 45 minutes, and he had that weird moment where realized, was I talking too much? And what do you suppose he did then? He turned and asked me why I had fallen in love with philosophy. And I said, yeah, well, it's a funny thing for me too. I said, for me, I'm a Christian and I love thinking and talking about the big questions. And that was where you do that in a university is in a philosophy department. So we ended up having this wonderful conversation about the big questions in life. And suddenly I have one of these guys ask me things about what happens when you die. Is it possible for there to be angels, disembodied, intelligent creatures? We have, you know, we're philosophers, so we talk about crazy things, but <laughs> it was an incredible moment when I suddenly realized, you know what? People play back what you play to them. If you play a sermon to them, they'll sermon back. If you ask a question to them, they're really likely to question back, and that opens the door to conversation. Another free tip. Um, learn to laugh at yourself. You're way funnier than you think. I mean, just seriously. Um, and we have a knack for, you know, thinking we've got to get this all figured out. We have to have every point. There's an 18-point proof for the existence of God. I always miss point 14. And we're, you know, we're stressing out over getting all this stuff sort of figured out. And then we, we go to talk to somebody about this, and you say the thing you thought made so much sense, and they just look and say, well, what about this? And you're suddenly like, ah. I have no idea what to say. I, what, oh, I don't know. And you feel a little silly. Here's a good thing to do when someone looks silly. Laugh. <laughs> it's you, right? And you're like, oh, wow, that's a good question. Here's a line. You may want to memorize it. You know why I like talking to you? Because you make me think better. Huh? That will get you out of any peril. I mean, I'm telling you, write it down, uh, you know, and it's just a wonderful thing when you realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to know all this stuff. And the other thing that happens when you say something like that is the person on the other end says, oh, wow, 
That was very, and they feel better because they go, hey, I'm a person who makes somebody else think better. And the other thing is that's kind of an invitation to finish the conversation because you say, wow, I don't know what to say about that, but now you have me really interested. Let me come back and talk to you about this tomorrow after I can read up on this because that's a really good question. You know what you've done is turned one conversation into two, right? You've not only crossed a bridge, you're starting to like build a tent, a house, a city there. Um, You've suddenly opened a door. How? Just by being willing to laugh at yourself and to realize I don't know anything and that's really okay. And that has an incredible effect on the person on the other side. Final thought. Um, we, we have a knack for sort of thinking about talking about God, our, our Christian talking. Kind of like, you know, it's a court of law. And uh, we're, we're, we're the attorney who's, who's, you know, trying to defend God before the jury. And we have to convince the jury that, you know, God didn't do it. It's okay. Not guilty. Let him off. Whatever it is. We, we're feeling like, man, we've got to argue for this whole, whole you know, God Thing. And of course, if you screw up, I mean, it's one thing if you screw up in your attorney and like, you know, the guy has a bad trip to jail. I mean, with God, wow, that would be really bad, right? And suddenly we begin to freeze up because we're like, wow, I don't know that I can be God's attorney. Here's the good news. God never called you to be an attorney. He called you to be a witness. And let me tell you what, the easiest job in a court of law is to be the witness. Because you just said, I don't know what happened. I just saw. And then you tell them what you saw. I mean, what are you going to say? You didn't see that? Well, no, I did see it. I don't know what to make of it, but that's what I saw. Read John 9. I love it. You know, the, the sophisticated people are interviewing this man in the legal court, the theological legal court, the Pharisees, and they're all sitting there. And the blind man's just looking at him and saying, what's wrong with you guys? I don't know what to make of Jesus. I'm just telling you, I used to be blind and now I see. Don't ask me these complicated theological questions. I'm the blind man. Well, I was the blind man. Now I'm the seeing man. But anyhow, I don't know how to answer you about those. But I do know this. This morning I was blind and this afternoon I can see. If you want to know anything else, talk to somebody else. But I can be a witness. Because that's what I saw. And one of the wonderful things we do is to say, oh, I don't have to be the attorney. I get to be the witness. And let me encourage you to stop and think, hey, what could I be the witness about? We talk about sharing our testimony. You realize that's a term that's associated with witnesses in courts of law, right? They give testimony. We tend to think about that with a story about how exactly we came to faith in Christ. And of course, that's a great thing to have a testimony about. So I'm I'm all in for that. But let me encourage you to not just have a testimony, but to have testimonies that say, let me tell you about what's been happening in my life lately and how I've been meeting God in the midst of this. Like I mentioned before, I've had a lot of people I've been talking to in this past year, and they asked me how it's going. I said, well, it's been a weird year. It's been a weird year. I had two parents die, and I had two grandsons born. Um... And I was sharing this with a friend of mine, and she said, yeah, you know, it's a weird thing when your parents die. Since through your whole life, you're climbing up the ladder of age, and you keep looking down, and there's more and more people on the ladder beneath you. You're like, whoa, lots of people on this ladder. Um, but when you look up, there's always mom and dad. And then one morning, you look up, and mom and dad aren't there anymore. And you suddenly realize you're at the top of the ladder. 
And let me tell you something. I, you know, I'm a Christian, right? I have these beliefs about eternal life and heaven and all this stuff. But let me just self-report. When you lose your mom and dad in the same year and you look up and no one's on the ladder of age above you, you start thinking some different thoughts than you've ever thought before in your life. And it's a great chance when someone, you're talking to them and you just tell them that. and said, you know, I'm a guy who thought I had all the answers about this, but this has been creepy for me. This has been weird. And it's an invitation. You just share, here's how I've processed this with God. It's an invitation in some sense for them to ask you more questions or for them to share their own story. So let me encourage you to think, here's things I can talk about where and how God has met me or where I've been looking for him to meet me and he hasn't been there. Talk about what you've actually witnessed. You're not the attorney, you're the witness. And let me encourage you to come up with some of those things, to keep a short list of things that you could share should you be called to give testimony. And you don't just have to talk about something that happened 35 years ago when you came to Christ. You might want to talk about something that happened 35 days ago that still leaves you puzzled, excited, relieved, concerned, whatever it is. Give testimony to where and how you're meeting God in your life. So those are the things that I wanted to talk about. Let me just point out that there's, uh, if, if you're interested in some of these things, obviously, as was mentioned, this is partly a thing that I've been thinking about because I wrote this book with my friend Tim Muehlhoff, and we have those available out there. Really cheap compared to Amazon, by the way. Um, they, anyhow, I won't tell you. So feel free to, to grab that out there. More important to me, let me encourage you to do just a couple of things. Uh, think of a question that you'd really like to ask someone and ask them. And then secondly, think of a bit of testimony that you might like to give. What's something that's happened in your life recently that you'd be able to share with another? And that way you might be just a little bit more ready to speak Christianly to some of the people that God might bring into your, into your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible privilege of speaking about you, even though sometimes that becomes awkward, even though sometimes we're scared. Lord, there's no question that on balance, it's one of the greatest privileges we actually have. And Lord, I pray you would give us the grace and wisdom to do that well and effectively. Thank you for meeting us in the midst of our need. And Lord, I pray you would help us to make the most of the doors that you open before us and help us to be people who actually speak to those that you give. In Jesus' name, amen.